0: 1980 at the Winter Olympics at Lake Placid. How many of you were alive at that time? Okay. For some of you, you're like, ooh, good, ancient history. (laughs) So Lake Placid, New York, there was an amazing feat of teamwork that captured the minds and hearts of America. Uh, Many of you have seen the Disney movie Miracle, uh, and this is the story that I'm going to talk about. As the 1970s kind of came to a close and the 1980s were dawning, We were still locked in the icy grip of the Cold War between communism and Western capitalism. The two primary parties that were kind of at the forefront of this political saga were the Soviet Socialist Republic of the USSR and the United States. And at every turn from athletic competitions to the competition to land someone on the moon, it was a fight. It was characterized by feats of strength. The United States won in many venues, but when it came to ice hockey, A., The USSR, did you catch that for you Canadians? Eh? Yeah? The USSR had won five of the last six gold medals. And it was truly a David and Goliath type of situation. In their first unofficial uh, contest just prior to the Olympics, the USSR and America met in Madison Square Garden in New York City, and the USSR dominated them 10 to 3. The Soviet team was made up of battle-hardened international professional veterans, whereas our team was made up of young college students, who many of whom wouldn't even go to the NHL. They were the youngest team in the Olympics, and it would take a miracle for them to win. When they finally met for the Olympic gold medal in February of 1980, they had fought through hard, and the United States team, they played completely out of their mind. And as the clock wore down on this American 4-3 to victory, the sportscaster, Al Michaels, who was covering the game, excitedly questioned the TV audience, Do you believe in miracles? <laughs> Thus, it was forever known as the Miracle on Ice. Now, if you watch the movie that reflects this story by Disney Movies entitled Miracle, you'll see that the high point of the story is that they won the game. But, the reality is, is when we look at the deeper truth underneath, most of the storyline was the miracle that they played together as a team. You see, when this group of of no-names got together and played like a team, they were able to beat the Soviet team that was full of all sorts of talent. The biggest miracle was actually what it took to get them to work together, as one unit, to defeat an athletically superior Soviet team. Now, I use this story as an introduction this morning because in looking at the obvious impossibility, the obvious miracle, the gold medal, the win itself, we might miss the greater miracle underneath. We miss the story of unity and teamwork that brought the country together. We miss the true miracle. In the text before us this morning, many of you are very, very familiar with it. It's Jesus walking on water. We use this idiom often when we're talking about someone who is important or a powerful or a miracle in our eyes. We say that person walks on water. And this is one of, the, one of the stories that people wrestle with when they say, oh, the Bible's not true or Jesus couldn't have been true. This story is known by believers and non believers alike. But in it, we have similar circumstances. Now, it's true that the idea of a human man walking on water because Jesus was 100% man, 100% God, uh, the idea that he was walking on water as if it were solid ground is a miracle of impossible proportions. But if we look too much at that walking on water, we miss what the author is trying to get to underneath. And So what we're going to see from our story today when we cast our eyes on the true miracle is that the miracle is not just a man walking on water. He surely did that, and that is in and of itself a miracle. Rather, we're going to look at the miracle underneath. We're going to look at the ultimate miracle, the fact that the Exodus God became incarnate and dwelt among us. That's what the title of this sermon is this morning, if you want to write it down. The ultimate miracle was that the Exodus God became incarnate in Jesus Christ. And when we see this miracle, we understand God's character more closely. Because remember, we come to church not to just feel better about ourselves. Sometimes that does happen. But we come to church primarily to worship God and to know more of his character because the overflow of that will affect our lives. And so I believe that this story is going to help us understand God's character more closely, but I also believe it will give us a greater peace in the midst of the struggles of life and the questions we have for God when we feel like he has left us alone. So let's take a look at the first portion of our text this morning. If you would, look with me at Mark 6.45, and we're just going to go through verse 52 to start this morning. It says there in verse 45, "...immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray." He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The main point of Mark's retelling of these events is Jesus is the Exodus God incarnate. It's the main point of this story. Jesus is the Exodus God incarnate. It's not the walking on water. He utilizes that as a literary tactic to tell us the truth about what he's trying to get across. Now, hear me correctly. Jesus walked on water. I'm not trying to disprove that at all. But by focusing on that, we miss the point of the author. Remember that the reason that the Gospels are different, even the three that are harmonized, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of them are written in a different way or packaged in a different way with the same underlying truths and stories in order to communicate a purpose. That's why we write, We don't just write to give data. That's what we think often in 2020 because we're Google people, right? We write in order to produce a a communication, and that's what's trying to happen through all of the Gospels, and Mark is doing that here. He's telling us Jesus is the Exodus God incarnate. Now, last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus is the fulfilled provision of the perfect shepherd king. You even see that in this section at the bottom, it talks about the loaves, right? Because it's referring back to the story we covered last week, and you can go pick that up online if you didn't hear it. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, it is extremely clear that Mark is casting Jesus as the better Moses delivering bread from heaven to God's people. And the mind of the hearer as they're listening to this story would have immediately gone back to the Exodus and all that surrounded it. Just as the cross and resurrection is the seminal event for us as New Testament believers, in the Old Testament, the cornerstone, the peace that is the seminal event is the idea of the exodus and all that surrounds it. And so Mark cast Jesus in the light of the Messiah promised to the people of Israel, promised to them in the Old Testament the hope of the Messiah, that he would lead Israel in conquering the nations and freeing Israel from the bondage of the oppression of the invasive Roman Empire. This is what they wanted and needed and desired. Now, you might recall last week that we looked at the fact that the location in which the feeding of the 5,000 and even this portion of the story in Jesus walking on water, the location that this takes place is, is the Sea of Galilee, which was known for being a hotbed of zealous uprising, of insurrection against the invading forces, including Rome. And the people flocked to Jesus when they saw him and those most likely zealous revolutionaries were primarily the group of people that Jesus was feeding. This wasn't just, you know, little families that had come along to see the guy that did party tricks. This was zealous leaders, most likely, coming to him, trying to take him by force to be their military leader. Now, we get this primarily from another gospel from John 6:14 through 15. We looked at this last week. You can see it there on the screen. It says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, meaning the feeding of the 5,000, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Prophet here means Messiah, the one that was promised by Moses, the one that will lead us. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this extra information is very important for us to understand what's going on here in Mark. They were about to take him and make him their military leader, but was that why Jesus came? Church, was that why Jesus came? No, he didn't come for political reasons. This is one of the reasons I get so frustrated with Christians who are all about politics. It's awesome if you want to be involved in politics. It's awesome if you want to try and do the Lord's work through changing people's minds. Don't get so zealous about it. Jesus doesn't care about politics in the end. Whether the Republicans win or the Democrats win, Jesus will eventually come back and squash both parties. Just FYI, okay? Jesus doesn't feel the burn, okay? And Jesus isn't also for the other guy, right? And Jesus doesn't care because in the end, he will reign. So vote your conscience when it comes, and don't worry about it otherwise. And so the reality is, is Jesus wasn't coming to do anything political here. He was coming to say, I am the king, I am the one that will reign, and I am going to die for your sins so that I can even bring you into my kingdom. And this idea rolls right into our story this morning. In the first verse of 45, you see there that Jesus, quote-unquote, made his disciples get into a boat. Now, the Greek word here is anagazo, which means that he forcefully compelled them, right? He shoved them into the boat to go before him while he dismissed the crowd. This wasn't a, hey, guys, I'll meet you on the other side. This was get in the boat and go now. Now, something was up here, and while Mark doesn't give us explicit understanding, what we can surmise is that Jesus didn't want his disciples getting sucked into the zealous fervor that was calling for him to be made a military leader. He wanted them to stick to the plan, to the mission, which was to proclaim his gospel, In other portions of Scripture, we see that the disciples have this leaning. They want to be powerful leaders, and so it makes sense that Jesus would, in a sense, spare their ego and get them in the boat and move them on. And this sequence of events provides a backdrop for what's about to occur. Jesus is up on the mountain in fellowship with the Father. A darkness sets in, and Jesus is firmly on land, but the disciples are stuck in the chaotic waters again. This is a repeat, if you were with us, of an earlier story where they were fighting against the chaos of the sea. Now, let's sit in this a moment. Let's try and put ourselves in the place of the disciples, in the place of Jesus. Church, could there be a more perfect image of how it feels to be a Christian in this world sometimes? Jesus has sent us out into the world as part of the body of Christ, but we are toiling against the wind making headway, yes, but painfully. Everything seems against us in the midst of this chaos and darkness, and all the while we wonder where Jesus is. He was just right with us. We just had this mountaintop retreat or this wonderful devotion, and Jesus was with us. Where is he right now? It feels like he's up high on a mountain. The word for the the, uh, painfully there in the Greek is a word which means torturously or under torment. They were going against the wind torturously. Isn't that what it feels like sometimes? No matter how close you strive in obedience to Christ, no matter how hard you try to shine his light and proclaim his gospel, brothers and sisters, doesn't it sometimes feel like you're still being tormented? Does that resonate with anybody in here this morning? What better audience to hear this story than the first century believers under the Roman persecution... Just 30 to 40 years removed from Christ, the people that would have been listening to this for the first time were hearing this read aloud in their churches. Those folks may have even been old enough to remember the initial hope immediately after the resurrection. Jesus will return, finally his kingdom will come in place and yet here they are three or four decades removed. And yet in the midst of the Roman persecution, it seems like they're being tortured as God sat in his holy habitation, looking down on their toil, and the question probably, like it does for some of us, loomed largely in their minds. Is he ever going to come and help us? Where is he? What is he doing? Why isn't it time yet? Is he ever going to come back and get us to our destination? Where are you, God? Does anyone ever ask that question? That question resonates heavily with me. If you've ever seen or visited the Sea of Galilee, this next little section here where Jesus is sitting on the mountain and he sees his disciples, it doesn't make a ton of sense to us because if you've seen the Sea of Galilee, you know that it's a large, large lake. It would have been difficult For the human Jesus, with his human eyes, to have seen them from a distance that they were struggling. He could have seen the little speck of a boat and seen that they might not have been been making progress, but he couldn't see if they were struggling. So the wording here is meant to bring out something. Mark is purposefully providing Jesus with God-like vision into the state of his disciples. He's sitting on a mountain seeing the speck of the boat, but in there, he's seeing their struggle. He sees their affliction. And so he comes to them around what we would classify as 3 a.m., walking on the sea. Now, In the last few centuries, as the scientific method and modernism and postmodernism have taken full control of our Western worldview, many options have been thrown out by critics and even theologians to explain this blatant dismissal of the law of physics Now, to attempt to explain the miracle, though, is to miss the author's point entirely. We're to hear this story. We're to look at it and say, that is impossible. Physics does not allow a human to walk on water. Do you know that's supposed to be your response? You're literally supposed to say, this could not happen, unless he's God. And then maybe maybe it could. Because only the creator God has this kind of power over the chaotic waters. I've loved it when in the past people have brought this story to me and said, what do you think about that, pastor? That's kind of an impossibility, isn't it? And I say, yeah, if you think of him just in his 100% humanness, but realize he was also God. And then they go, oh yeah, I forgot about that part. See, the reason this is supposed to be so blatantly impossible is because it is. Unless Jesus is God. In the book of Job, as a way to proclaim the utter difference between God and his created humanity, Job utters these lines. He says that God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. That's Job 9, eight. And just a few verses later, he says this interesting verse that makes a lot of sense in what we're talking about. He says, Behold, God passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. These are core characters to Yahweh, God. It was understood that only God could walk across the waters he created, only God passes by us and is fully present. And yet, at times, we don't even notice that he's there. Notice the similarities to Mark. But even more specifically, for the hearers of this gospel, their minds are already placed in and around the Exodus because of the previous story, because of the feeding of the 5,000. And in the Exodus, God manipulated the water in a way to visit and protect his people. Do you remember the story? The winds came in and blew the the water apart so that it was like giant walls on either side as the Israelites went through and the Pharaoh's army pursued them. God manipulated the water as if it were nothing. And this is repeated throughout scripture as one of the qualifying characteristics, the descriptions of who God is. Take a look at Psalm 77, verses 19 through 20. It says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Interesting that last week we talked about how Mark's point in the feeding of the 5,000 is that Jesus is the great shepherd king leading his people. Notice how the prophet Isaiah characterizes Yahweh in similar fashion. He calls the Exodus God the one who does this work of the Exodus. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. And again, he says in Isaiah 51 through 10, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Only Yahweh... Only the Exodus God of Israel makes a path through the waters of the sea. But Mark doesn't end there. He continues from this imagery of Jesus trampling the water as he comes to them. And then it says in Mark chapter 6 there that Jesus meant to pass by them. Now in our English translation... I picture Jesus walking by on the waves going, hey guys, right, as he just kind of moves on. But that's not the point here. Jesus didn't have a hot date he was trying to get to. He didn't have something better to do. He's purposefully passing by them. He sees them struggling in the wind and the waves. And so our previous reading in Mark 4 about Jesus calming the sea would have us thinking, well, why don't you just calm down, come down, Jesus, and calm down the sea like you did previously? And save them. But he purposefully means to pass by them. Now, we have to stop for a second and put this in our biblical theology. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, mankind was in such intimate union with God that we walked with him, we talked with him in the cool of the day. We saw God face to face. Wouldn't that be nice? To see your creator face to face. We had that. But then we chose, as humanity, to rebel And decide our own version of right and wrong, rather than to trust in him and submit to him as God and king. And this broke our innate covenant union that we had with him, and we were cast out of his presence, away from his face. And since that time, it is the heart's cry of mankind that we would see the face of God again, that he would be present in our lives But because we now have original sin in our being, while we were made in the image of God, God is fully separate and different than we are. He is creator and we are his creation. He is holy, perfect, and powerful. We are not. And so the word tells us that we cannot look upon him or we will die. So in the Old Testament, you see God showing himself through other avenues, burning bushes, angels of the Lord, and so on. But on two occasions, the Lord is shown in close proximity to his prophet, to his people. But so that they don't die, he merely passes by them so that they can catch his afterglow, if you will, or the afterglow of his presence. The one that is attached clearly to the Exodus God and fits the surrounding text here is found in Exodus 33. Would you turn there with me? Exodus 33, verse 12. Give me an amen if you're there. Moses, in the midst of talking with God after the people have already failed in the infamous golden calf incident, and he's basically pouring his heart out before God saying, Lord, if you don't go with us and we have to go alone, we're not going to make it. So let's read verse 30, uh, verse, chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to Yahweh, remember that whenever you see the L-O-R-D capitalized there in the Old Testament, behind it is the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, Yahweh. You see, uh, see, you say to me, bring up this people, Moses said, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Okay, Moses is going through the same thing we do as Christians. Lord, I know that you know me in relationship. I know that you love me, but it, it feels like you're not with me in the midst of this current situation. Verse 13, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight consider too that this nation is your people. And God said, notice how he responds. He doesn't fight him. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says to us. But we're just like Moses. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses, didn't you notice that God just said he's going to go with you? But this is the human condition, isn't it? Lord, I know you told me that you're going to go with me, but I really need you to go with me. You're not here with me, right? Any of you ever feel that way? God's saying, I'm here, and we're saying, no, you're not. And so he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and i will cover you with my hand until i have passed by then i will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen notice the graciousness of god's response he doesn't get angry with moses he says i'll go with you remember i have a relationship with you i know you by name and then to show him how close he is to god god says i'm going to protect you while i pass by you so that you know i'm with you God will pass by him and in so doing provide a way to protect him from his holiness, but also show him who he is. Now jump ahead to Exodus 34, 6-10, and we see God actually describing who he is. It says the Lord, Yahweh, passed by before him and, uh, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? That doesn't sound like Jesus. Well, got to read Revelation. Revelation. You've got to read the end of it when Jesus returns as judge to judge the living and the dead. This is Jesus. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Here Yahweh God declares his character more explicitly than any other place in Scripture. Folks, if you have built God in your own image, which we all have, you need to meditate on this scripture. When I sit in counseling with people, most often I'll ask this question, which half resonates for you? Probably three quarters of the time, which section do you think people say sounds more like God? The steadfastly loving and merciful one or the angry judge? The angry judge. This is the fullness of who God is. Meditate on that scripture Meditate on who God is and let your view of God be transformed into what the Word says, not what you say. This section is the most quoted section of Scripture by Scripture in the Old Testament. And it's only in his loving grace and his holy judgment that he could be good and just. We can't just kick one of them out. The covenant God of Exodus showed himself to Moses as he passed by him. And the sinfulness of his people made it so they could not see God face to face. But God came to visit Moses and passed by him so that Moses could know and be comforted that the Exodus God was with him. The author Mark is using the same symbolic and picturesque language to declare decisively that Jesus is the Exodus God come to see his people face to face. Dear church, this is the ultimate miracle of Jesus walking on water. In such a proclamation, Mark is again answering the thematic question of Mark, who do you say that Jesus is? Mark is without hesitation proclaiming that Jesus is the Exodus God come among men. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And this should bring us, as it did hearers of the first century, great comfort. Because the core understanding of the Exodus God is that he saves his people. The core understanding of the Exodus God is that he saves his people. You and I feel much like the first century audience of this gospel. Where is God in the midst of all this? Does he care? And Mark is reminding us that he does indeed. Remember that Jesus is the Exodus God, come alive among men. This is the theme of the biblical narrative arc that God would come to his people and save them. Do you guys now see why I get so frustrated with churches that teach forget the Old Testament and just focus on the new? That's heresy. It's heresy. Because to not understand the Old Testament is to completely miss the point of the New Testament. And to turn it into a self help therapeutic gospel where Jesus is for me and always there to solve my problems. It's to turn him into a genie in the lamp. But what the reality of Mark is saying is that the Exodus God, the God of the Old Testament, has come down in Jesus Christ. Hear the cry of the people in Isaiah about what they need from their God and see if God has been faithful to answer it. This is from Isaiah 63.15 through 64.1. Their cry to, them, so to him, and the prophet Isaiah is saying this, look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, through Abraham, does, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. From of old is your name, O Lord. Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart? Notice all the language that is very similar to Mark: the hardness of the disciples' heart. Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? And guys, that is not a statement that God is the one who is hardening your heart. We could go into that theology a ton. It's a mixture of God allowing you to have your way when you harden your heart against him. Okay, And then they go on. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Notice the last cry here. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And so when a sign is looked for, it's not that Jesus is walking on water. It's not that he feeds 5,000. The sign that is looked for is that the creator God would rend the heavens and come down incarnate in the flesh. The ultimate miracle is that this Exodus God, the God that created his people and then saved them from oppression in spite of their sinfulness, this God loves his people so much that he would incarnate and become man among them so that they might see him face to face in intimate relationships. I think we often in 2020 mindset look back and, yeah, Jesus, the incarnation, yeah, totally cool. It's about the cross and about the resurrection. No, guys, to have the cross and the resurrection, you need the incarnation. You need God to become man, to die, to resurrect, to pour out his spirit. This is the sign to the people that God has become man among them. Remember that the worldview of the cosmos and the ancient Near East was not unlike the Greeks. The Greeks had the gods up on Mount Olympus. But all ancient Near East people thought that the mountains were pillars that held up the sky, and that is why they say God is in his holy habitation. They view him as sitting on a mountain away from them, indifferent to to their problems. They have a view that God sat in the heavenlies. And in other words, God was distant from mankind, sitting there, like I said, aloof and indifferent from the suffering of mankind. This is what most pagan religions thought of God in the days of the Old Testament on up into Jesus. And this is what made the Exodus God so different, that he wanted covenant relationship with his people, that he wanted to be in relationship with them. So, while the pagan nations pictured God sitting atop the mountain, gazing at the suffering of the people without care, Israel was different. Their God was still atop a mountain, yes, Mount Sinai, but he acted to save them and draw them to himself. And if you recall the story, the reason they couldn't go charge up the mountain with Moses was their own fear and indifference from God. And so they said, Moses, you go for us. We're scared. God wanted relationship with them. Recall to mind the start of the Exodus story. It wasn't the people forcing God's hand to move. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, the land, uh, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with <clears throat> milk and honey. Church, this is the core character of the Exodus God, that he hears and sees the oppression of the people and comes to save them from their oppressors. Mark plays heavily upon this imagery and shows Jesus aloof sitting on a mountain and yet, seeing the suffering of those that are his followers, comes down the mountain, rends the heavens, if you will, walks on water to get to them in the midst of the storm and the chaos, passing by them as the Exodus God, but in full form. The apostles see Jesus, but because they're still unaware that this is truly God come amongst them as the Messiah, they are terrified. And all they can do is to think that Jesus is a phantom. The other day, uh, Seth and Sam, who you guys need to thank profusely, by the way, they were in working on the kitchen, and I walked up, because I'm kind of like a Scandinavian ninja, right? I walked up behind Sam, and I was standing there, and I forget how big I am, and he turned around and saw my chest and it went like that, right? If you don't expect someone to be there, it's a little bit terrifying. Well, they look out, and they see Jesus standing there, and they're like, what is he doing there? Would they have been terrified if he were standing on a hidden piece of sand in the middle of the lake? No, they would have known it. They knew this lake by the back of their hand. Would they have been terrified if he was actually walking along the shore and it was just an optical illusion? No, they wouldn't have. Jesus was literally walking on water, and that's why they were terrified. They saw what they thought was a phantom, but Mark makes clear, he reinforces That they were hardened in their hearts, which means that they did not fully understand. So little was their understanding that they did not understand the implications, as we discussed last week, regarding the loaves and the feeding of the 5,000. That should have been enough for them to go, got it, Jesus, Yahweh, same thing, okay. But it wasn't. And if any doubt is left in the mind of the hearer who Jesus is at this point, Mark quotes Jesus as responding to their terror with the phrase rendered here Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In our English translation, the weight of this statement is completely lost. But to get to the original author's point in the Greek, it could be translated woodenly as this Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Ego eimi in the Greek. Does this sound familiar to you? The Exodus God, speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, answers Moses' inquiry about his name by stating this in Exodus three fourteen through 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Sorry, I don't have the Charlton Heston voice there. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am who I am has sent me to you. Ego a in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Ego Ami has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Exodus God was known as the great I Am. The God come to bring his people hope that they might gain freedom from enslavement. Take heart, I Am. Do not be afraid. The Exodus God acts to save his people. Jesus is the Exodus God. I remember years ago watching this news story. I think it was Tom Brokaw that, that uh, did it. And he started the, the uh, it was a, a show about the Bible. And he started it by saying the phrase, Nowhere in the Bible did Jesus actually claim to be God. So let's look at that possibility. And I remember at the time being naive in my faith going, Really? Oh, man! Do I even believe the truth? But now, understanding the fullness of the Bible, growing in my understanding of the fullness, not having it complete yet, but even seeing this and how the gospel writers said, Guys, Jesus is the Exodus God. There is no doubt that Jesus is God incarnate. The Exodus God came to save his people. God came to the human race that denied his reign, lovingly pursued us that he might open the way to reconciliation with the Father God by way of his own sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The Exodus God came to save his people. As we read in our second reading from John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18, it says at the end there, the last section, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's a hard phrase in the English to wrap our minds around. But that's exactly what it says. Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, being God, has made God who is spirit, the Father God, known to us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the in, in, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15 says. And for those that don't understand this, that don't worship Jesus as Savior and King, the reason is, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, that the God of this world, notice the lowercase g, This is a false god. Satan himself, the adversary of God, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. God had left his heavenly abode and come to visit the very people he called to be his own. He came to save. Friend, if you are here today and you are one who does not follow Jesus as God... Lord, Savior, and King, you are one of those spoken of in this scripture. You are blinded to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, but you are here today by God's sovereign will, so that the scales of your eyes might be removed, that you might see that the God who created you, who created the universe, loves you. And sent his son to die in your place to pay the price for all that you have done. He's paid the price for all that you carry shame for. He's paid the price for every act, every word that has been contrary to him. And he's calling you to a different life. He's calling you to a new life in him. And he has shown you the love he has for you by coming in the flesh to die for your sins. He resurrected from that death on the cross of Calvary three days later, proving that this is true, that what I say today is not hearsay or myth, it is truth. And you have to wrestle, if Jesus did not come down as God incarnate, then how did he resurrect? And how was he seen by so many witnesses? And how has his church survived in 2,000 years of persecution? You have to wrestle with that or you can simply turn your life over to him. You can become part of his church by accepting his Holy Spirit, by repenting from your sin and by giving your life over to him today. Friend, if that's you and you're sitting here today and you have not given your life to him, during the last portion of worship, there are gonna be some elders in the back and they want to pray with you and they want to initiate a relationship with you and they want to talk to you about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. I would beg of you, beg of you to go back and talk to them today if that's you. Well, let's conclude by looking at the last portion of our text today. If you'd go back to Mark 6 with me and take a look at Mark 6, 53 through 56, we'll see the summation to our previous sections. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore and when they got out of the boat the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region <laughs> excuse me and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came in villages cities or countryside they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well I once heard the man who started the Vineyard Church talk about the origins of why he wanted to focus so heavily on healing, and his statement was, was he went to a Quaker church, he heard all these stories, and he went to one of the elders and said, hey, I want to do all the cool stuff that Jesus does. How do we do that? That was the start of the Vineyard denomination. It's largely why I disagree with a lot of their theology. The reason that that's false is because this isn't stuff for you and I to do. Is it just that you don't have enough faith to go walk on water? Is it just that you don't have enough faith that your genes don't heal people when they touch them? No, the whole point of these sections are not imperatives for you to do. They're statements of who God is, and this section is no different. You see, for this section, what it tells us is that again, this is the Exodus God come down among men and that through Christ's salvation, the Exodus God has shown us his face. The Exodus God has shown us his face. Now, how do we know this? Well, for the Jews of the Old Testament, as they were exiled and dispersed across the earth, as their homeland became overtaken by enemies, they wondered if God had forgotten them. And from the time of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, until the advent of Jesus was roughly 400 years. But during that time, there was a rabbinic teaching that the messianic promise given to Israel was that one day the Messiah would come and he would rescue Israel and bring healing in a very specific way. And one of the places they got this from was from Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You can look up at the screen. Malachi prophesies, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall." Now, he says this mystical notion of the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. The word for wings there is the Hebrew word kanaf. Can you guys say kanaf? Kanaf. Kanaf. Now, there's a ton here, but this same word is used to describe the edge or the hem of a garment, specifically a prayer shawl upon which the tassels were to be placed so that the Jews could be reminded of the heavenly home of God. Now, Here's the same word used in a different way that's translated in a different way in English. In Numbers 15.38, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners, kanaf, of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. This speaks the command to attach these tassels as a reminder of their relationship to God. And the word here for edge is the same word as wings, kanaf. Thus the rabbinic teaching at the time of Jesus was that God would send his Messiah and that Messiah would have healing in his kanaf. That's why they wanted to touch the hem of his garment. And wherever this Exodus God incarnate went among the villages of Galilee, people implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were healed, were made well, healing in the kanaf of the Exodus God incarnate. Now, in his usual concise method, Mark poetically and majestically paints the truth over a mere 12 verses that can answer the question, who is Jesus? And what is the answer, church? Who is Jesus? He is God. He is the Exodus God. And the question now becomes for each of you in this room as individuals, who do you say that Jesus is? Dear friend, if you have not proclaimed that Jesus is indeed the creator And the Exodus God come among men, then today is the day to do so. But if you are already a part of his people, I want you to be awash in this truth that this text gives us. In Jesus Christ, God has shown us his face. In a world where the torment of this life causes us to cry out with frequent anguish, God, where are you? Show me your face. God has answered in the form of his Son. The priestly blessing of the high priest upon the people of Israel is a promise that God would eventually fulfill to a people that longed to see him face to face in loving, intimate relationship. That priestly blessing is what we sing to one another at the end of our gathering every Sunday from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. Now, you might be used to the tradition, but pay attention to the words here. The Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, that's another way of saying his face, upon you and give you peace. They long to see the face of the God that created them, the God that freed them, the Exodus God. In Jesus, God was finally, once and for all time, making good on the promise to show his face to his people. To do so, this same God would need to make a way for you and I, a people unholy and broken by sin, to be purified and cleansed so that we could once again reconcile with the holy God. He gave his life that we might be reconciled to him so that we might fully see his face. That is how much he loves you. That is how much he loves me. That is how much he loves his church. This morning, the Lord desires to remind you that he is with you in the midst of what feels like torturous suffering. You might be toiling in the midst of the tempest, wondering if he even sees you. The answer is that he does. He is closer to you than you think. Let's turn to Isaiah 43. And I want to end with this. Isaiah 43, this is the last text I believe I'll turn you to. And in Isaiah 43, I want you to just hear what God is saying. And I want you to forget for a second that this is from Isaiah. And if you do, you probably will feel as though you're sitting in the New Testament hearing from Jesus. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord. your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not for I am with you, I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Skip forward to verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea. A path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, clenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God did the impossible. He saved us from our sin. He made a way to redeem us, to allow us to see the face of him who we spurned and turn our back on. God may be allowing the tempest in your life to continue, but know this, you are precious in his eyes. You are honored and loved. So much so that he gave his son in exchange for you, so fear not, he is with you. Even if it seems like he's passing by you, he is with you. He's calling you to trust him and obey him even when it makes no sense. That's part of being a Christian. One day, it all will make sense. In Jesus, God has shown us his face. When we turned our collective face of humanity away from him, God sought after us and showed us his face. He desired relationship when we did not deserve it. And that's the gospel. This week, I would ask you to meditate as part of your application on Isaiah 43 and let the comfort of the Lord wash over you by his Holy Spirit. Jesus is with you. He sees you. He hears your heartbreak. He's with you by his Spirit. He's with you by his Spirit in the church. We're with you. And then, just as he turned his face towards us. The second part of our application is that we need to turn our face towards him. The Bible gives us two ways to do so. The first is repentance. Do you know that that's another way you can say what repentance is, is that we turn our face towards Jesus? That we turn our face away from those things that we pursued, that we thought would bring us joy and happiness, but in fact, they eventually bring us destruction and death, and we instead turn our face towards Jesus as our savior and king. I'm gonna speak to you the words of a song that many of you know was very popular uh, in the 80s and 90s because they redid it, but it was originally written in 1918, and it's by a a woman named Helen Howarth Lemmel, and it's the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. O O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting, he passed, and we follow him there. Over us, sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's take a minute of silence as we lay down the things of this week before the Lord and prepare our hearts to take communion when they start their song, I'm gonna have the first row get up, and every row, even these outer sections, you're gonna to come to the middle, and then you're gonna go out to the tables on either side, go back around the back, and then come into your rows again. If you're a person who doesn't wanna take communion, you can just stay seated, that's okay. If you're a person that's not in good standing at a church, or, or you don't believe in the Lord, you're fine to just stay seated, and the rest of us will go to the tables. And then take the cup and the bread and go back to your seat, and we will take it together, so hold on to it, at the end of the first song. So let's sit in just a moment of silence as we lay things before the feet of Jesus.